Good morning. I should tell Pat because he is uh, somewhat new here on the staff and uh, doesn't understand that it uh, doesn't at all bother me if people drop off while I'm while I'm preaching. Uh, just feel free to catch a few winks if you're tired. Um, it upholds uh, my reputation that I am the only person who talks in other people's sleep. <laughs> Heard a story once about a man that came up to his pastor and looked into his eyes and said, oh, they're blue. He said, yes. Uh, he said, why do you, uh, what difference does it make? He said, well, I've never noticed before because um, I've been attending your church for some years, and uh, I've never noticed what color your eyes are, because when you pray, you close your eyes, and when you preach, I close mine. <laughs> I hope you realize that Christmas did not begin in the 4th century when Constantine dated the holiday to coincide with the uh, winter solstice or some uh, feast of Saturnalia. Actually, Christmas did not begin in a cave in Bethlehem. Christmas began thousands and thousands of years before that date. And uh, ironically, it began in the country we call today Iraq. It began in a garden when there were only two people on the face of the earth, Adam and Eve. And uh, they proceeded to ruin their relationship with God and their relationship with one another and their relationship with their children. And they began to ruin their environment. And God saw all of that ruination and he determined to do something about it. He made a promise to the human race. Actually, he made it to the serpent, but uh, Adam and Eve were listening in. The serpent was the one who created the problem in the first place, and God cursed the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between your seed, that is the generations of serpents that would, uh, that would follow, your seed and her seed, the seed of the woman. And he shall crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Uh, Interesting promise. One of the problems in Hebrew is that the word seed is collective, just as it is in English. We use the word seed, the noun seed, both as a singular and as a plural noun because it can have a collective sense. And so it would be difficult to know exactly what uh, the promise was about. Was he saying that uh, all generations of men that will... uh, that will follow will crush the head of the serpent, or does he have in mind one man? Another problem is that in Hebrew there's no uh, neuter gender. There only, there's only masculine and feminine gender, so the he could also be it. But when you come down to the second century and the rabbis began to translate the Old Testament into Greek because that was the language that people spoke and used in everyday commerce, they translated that he as a First person singular masculine noun, he. Very bold translation. They were simply putting into print what what God's people had always believed, that one day one man would come 
and he would crush the head of the serpent. Now, the two very interesting uh, things to note about that promise. The first is that there's something unusual about the birth of the man. He would be the seed of the woman. Now, that's unusual in that culture because the seed came through the man in their, in their thought. The second thing that's unusual is that he is portrayed as a suffering savior. He would crush the head of the serpent. He would stamp on the head of the serpent, but in so doing, he would, he'd hurt himself. And uh, so here in the very beginning of time, there is this suggestion that one day a man is going to come who's going to undo the, the harm that uh, Adam and Eve did to themselves and to the whole human race and the harm that we perpetuate generation after, after generation. Oh, and it's more than a suggestion. It's a promise. Now, out of that, uh, out of that promise, all the myths have come. Uh, these uh, stories of virgin births, and these stories of suffering saviors that find their way into the myths, they're just myths. This is something more than a myth. There is a, there's a storyline that continues all the way through the Bible, all the way through, through human history. And, and the story is, is, is all about the seed and the fact that someday a man is going to come and he's going he's to set everything right. That promise was uh, restated to Noah, one of his sons, Shem, we're told, will, will bear the, the seed. The seed will come through that line. And then Abraham, who was one of Shem's descendants, was given that promise. Abraham passed the promise on to Isaac, his son. Isaac passed it on to Jacob, his son. Jacob's name was called Israel, renamed, was renamed Israel. So now we know the seed is coming through the Jews. And uh, then through one tribe of the Jews, through Judah. And then, if you remember last week, we picked up the next generation in the story of Ruth uh, Perez. If you want to turn back to the last chapter of of Ruth, chapter 4, Perez, who was Judah's son, was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon the uh, the father of Salmon, Solomon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. We talked about Obed last, last week, the Ruth's uh, little boy, whom Naomi cradled, who's described in the book of Ruth as the kinsman redeemer, the relative who would redeem her from her life of hopelessness. And here's another one of these little clues, little animations, little hints that the, that the guarantee is still there, the promise is still good, that God is working out his... His promise, a little sign, a little symbol that he's not forgotten. That he still has in his mind this thought of bringing into the world the man that will, will redeem us. And then little Obed became the father of Jesse, whom we know as the father of David. And that takes us down to the time of, of King David. Now I want you to turn to, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel is all about Saul. Uh, Saul was the wrong king, came from the wrong tribe, came from the tribe of Benjamin, not Judah. And uh, Saul eventually went stark, raving mad, as we know. Uh, He could have become a great king. He chose rather to follow his own devices, and he, he destroyed his chances. So the kingship was taken away from him, and it was, and it was given given to David. David uh, 
reigned for seven and a half years in the city of Hebron. And then he conquered Jebus and uh, gave it its old name of Jerusalem. And he moved his capital down to Jerusalem. And he went down to um, the house of Obed-Edom and he brought up the ark. Because, as he said, we didn't didn't go get it during the time of Saul. We didn't care about the ark. The ark, in David's mind, symbolized the presence of God in the midst of the nation. It was very important to him to have that symbol in the city. He knew that God didn't dwell in that ark or on that ark. There was nothing magic about the ark, but the ark symbolized the presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us. So he brought the ark up to Jerusalem, put it in this uh, kind of scruffy little tent that that it was housed in. And uh, then he vanquished the Philistines. This chapter is a little bit out of, uh, out of phase historically. It's put here for theological reasons, not for historical reasons. What occurred in this chapter occurred fairly late in, in David's life. Now, uh, we're told in the chapter before that he had a very hard uh, home life, very difficult marriage. He's married to a woman by the name of Michal, who was Saul's daughter. She never shared David's heart for God. From the very beginning, their lives diverged. They'd been childhood sweethearts. She was given to David while he was still in the court and then taken away from him when he was driven out into the wilderness. And first thing David did when he came back uh, and assumed, uh, assumed uh, command was to go get Michal, bring her back. She became his wife again. They were reconciled. But she never had the heart for God that David had. And uh, you may remember the story in the Old Testament of David bringing the ark up from the house of Obed-Edom, and he was dancing before the, before the ark, and it embarrassed Michal. She rebuked him for it. And uh, they never really recovered, at least their relationship never did. And so I was out of that uh, difficult situation at home. And uh, this final statement in verse 6, Michal had no children to the day of her death, that this story merges. Chapter 7, verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in the tent. The Phoenicians had built this beautiful palace for David out of Lebanese cedar. And he he said, This isn't right. I I shouldn't be living in this place. I want to build something that's uh, even more magnificent for God. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Prophet gives his opinion. Eh, wrong. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, Go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelled in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of, of cedar? Wonderful word here about the simplicity of God. No dignity. Hates formality. He was willing to, to dwell in, in this tent we know from the description of it in Exodus from the outside, it was very drab, covered with goatskins, dark goatskins. Inside it was beautiful, but the outside was uh, very common, very ordinary. It's an indication here at the very beginning that, that uh, what men are inclined to esteem 
highly. God esteems lightly. He doesn't care what the habitation looks like, his habitation looks like. He's willing to dwell in the most common sort of house. Two applications of that in the New Testament. One is our Lord himself. John says, um, the word was with God. The word was God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And John, out of all of his vocabulary, chooses a word that means to tabernacle or to tent. He pup-tented. He dwelt with us in, in, in humanity. Just took on a common, ordinary body. If he'd been walking down the streets, you wouldn't even have noticed him. Uh, I, I like Hook's pictures of Jesus. But we have, of course, no idea what he looked like. He may have looked very ordinary. He may have been ugly, as a matter of fact. We don't know. Have no way of, but very beautiful inside. See. Deigns to inhabit common humanity. Uh, then I suppose the other application is that he's pleased to dwell within us. doesn't matter what we look like. We don't have to be fit and tanned and toned and terrific for God to love us and want to live within us. Isaiah puts it this way, quoting uh, the Lord. He says, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the place that you build unto me or the house? in which I can find rest, but to this man or woman will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and whose heart trembles at my word. You don't have to tone yourself up for him. You don't have to have more spit and polish. You don't have to try to do better to please him. All you have to do is just open up your heart and he'll come and dwell in you. He'll be Emmanuel, God dwelling with you. That's the simplicity of God. Then uh, he goes on, verse 8. Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own. And no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And have done ever since I appointed leaders. That's the word for judges. He's going back to that period of judges that we just studied. I appointed judges over my people, Israel. I'll also give you rest from all your enemies. This is what I call the generosity of God. He just wants to give. He wants to give and give and give. And give. It's not like Santa Claus, who's making a list and checking it twice, going to find out if you're naughty or nice. That's legalism. That's what that is. You know, I, as a little kid, I, I was always sure I was going to get switches in my socks because uh, that's what you get if you're naughty. But uh, God's not making a list. As a matter of fact, David in one of the Psalms says, if God were keeping a list, who could stand? He's not trying to find out who's naughty or nice. It's while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. He just wants to give, wants to give himself. We don't have to clean ourselves up to invite him in. We just have to invite him in. And then we'll want to begin to clean ourselves up. That's grace. Which is just the opposite of legalism. Notice what he says to David. 
I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people. Notice it's I, 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 all the way through here. It's what I have done. It's my conviction that uh, David was an illegitimate child and was very early rejected by his children. His genealogy is very confused, very difficult to trace the line of David. doesn't make any sense. doesn't have the right, the right uh, father. Um, as a matter of fact, in one of his psalms, he says, Though mother and father have rejected me, yet the Lord will take me up. He was... He was a pariah. He was an outsider. That's why when Samuel came to Jesse's house to anoint one of his sons as king, he knew that it would be one of Jesse's sons who would be exalted to the throne. David was left out. He was out in the field. He was just a little guy, probably a teenager, but, but the reason he was left in the field is because he was a nobody. And yet the Lord took this nobody and made somebody over him. Made him ruler over Israel. He says, I've, I've been, been with you wherever you've gone. And David didn't always go in the right direction. He had his ups and downs and his failures. And yet God stuck with him. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And then he turns to the future. I'll make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And David is far and away the greatest of all the kings of, of Israel. I'll provide a place for my people Israel, which he did under, under David. And I'll give you rest from all your enemies, which he did. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your seed, is the word, to succeed you who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his God, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure Forever before me, your throne will be established forever. You understand the argument? David is saying, I want to build you a house. God says, I don't want a house. I don't want you to do anything for me. Look at what I've already done. I want to build you a house. And uh, here he's playing on the word house. Referring to a dynasty. David wanted to build a house out of brick and mortar. God wanted to build a house for David out of flesh and blood. A seed. And notice the elements of this promise. This is uh, what the theologians call the Davidic covenant. And it is one of the key covenants in the Old Testament. The first being the promise of the seed to Eve. The second being the promise to Abraham that through him God would enrich the whole world. And in this third promise that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. Now notice the elements. There'll be a seed. And that should have rung a bell in David's mind, taking him all the way back to the very beginning. He was aware of the story of the fall and God's uh, uh, promise at that point to put things back together again. He was well aware that the seed had been promised. So that, that aroused, that piqued his interest. And he'll be a king. He'll have a kingdom. That is, he'll have a sphere of authority. 
and he'll have a throne. That is, he will have power and authority in that kingdom. I will be his father and he will be my son. A unique relationship between God and, and this son who is to follow him. He would be God's son. And that idea was never pressed in Israel. In all the rest of the ancient Near East, the uh, kings were considered to be sons of God in a literal sense. They were the offspring. Well, for example, the Pharaoh was the offspring of Almond, the, the god and the queen mother. That's why they could build those pyramids. Because if you're a god, you say frog and everybody jumps. They could pick up those, uh, those uh, two and a half ton blocks, two and a half million of them, and, and you, start, you start moving rocks when the Pharaoh is God. That idea was was accepted very literally in the rest of the world. It was never taken seriously in Israel. Solomon built uh, his throne on seven tiers to indicate that this was the throne of God, but that was a symbol because Solomon knew that, that someday a greater son of David would come who would literally be the son of God. Psalm 45, Psalm 45, the Old Testament just bursts out of its banks. The psalmist says... Uh, Your throne, uh, words addressed to the king, clearly addressed to the king. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then later he says, God, your God has anointed you above all your fellows. So here's this odd thing. You have the king addressed as God, and yet he's a God who has a God, and that doesn't make any sense at all until you get to the New Testament and suddenly it falls into place. The incarnation makes sense. Here's a God who has a God. But in the Old Testament, it was all very obscure. They, they, didn't, they didn't understand it. But they did understand that the one to come would be the Son of God. And uh, then we're told that uh, when the king does wrong, when he gets out of line, God would punish him. And, and up to this point, we could be talking about Solomon. Solomon would build a house for God's name. And uh, we... Solomon would fit until you get to this word forever. And then this promise breaks out of the minor leagues. And we're concerned with, with something more than a, than a human king. Because this one would sit on the throne of David forever. Then we understand he's talking about this greater son of David who's yet to come. The one who was promised. We say, oh, how does this fit? It says, well, I understand he's the seed. And, and certainly as a kingdom, Jesus said to... Uh, Pilate, my, my kingdom is not of this world, came not to establish a political kingdom, but a, but a spiritual kingdom. The Jews didn't understand that. They, they, they never could, could see why Jesus failed to set up a political kingdom. But he said very clearly that my kingdom is not of this world. He had authority. He said to the disciples shortly before his departure, all authority in heaven and earth is, is given to me. But... Uh, what, what can we say about this promise that if he does wrong, he would be punished? Jesus never did wrong. And there was one time, one time, when he went wrong. And that's when he hung on the cross, when he became sin for us. And then God did indeed punish him. That's, that's foretold in Isaiah 53. The, uh, the, the prophet, in talking about the suffering Messiah, said, we, we saw him, he was a man of sorrows. 
and grief. What, what was it that gave him that grief and that sorrow? We thought he was smitten of God, stricken by God. He was. Why? Because he was being punished for our sins. It's our punishment that he was taking. Our iniquity, iniquity was laid upon him. See? And he was indeed the Son of God in a literal sense. John, at the very end of his Gospel, says, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Son of David, yes, but also the Son of God. And he's one who would reign on the throne of David forever. And when David got this word, he fair jumped up and down and out of his skin. David's prayer follows in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O Lord, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Now, my translation translate the, translates the next line this way. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? The, the translators don't quite know what to do with this line. Let me read it to you literally. It, 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 would, it would read like this. This is not a question. It's a statement. This is the law of the man. That's what the text says. This is the law of the man. And the word for law is the word Torah, which means teaching or instruction. It really means to point, to direct someone, to give them, uh, to give them a lesson. This has to do with the man, he's saying. This is instruction concerning the man. What man? The man that's promised uh, to the whole human race. The man that was promised to, to Adam and Eve. See what he's saying? He, he realizes that he is in this historic line, the line that was promised that would someday redeem the world. And this literally changed David's life. He was never the same after he received this promise. And that's why in, in, in his Psalms, he begins to talk about the one who is to come. He says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. He was talking about the Messiah, who was his son. And he calls him Lord, which is something unheard of in that culture, because the Father is the Lord of the Son, not the Son, Lord of the Father. Because he saw that the one to come was the man who was promised. And uh, he wrote all of these psalms and he commissioned the other uh, uh, musicians in Israel to write these psalms. And these tremendous, magnificent statements were sung and prayed and proclaimed over the kings from that time on. Not because these people were the Messiah, but to keep before them the promise that one of these days Messiah would come. Messiah just means the anointed one. The kings were all anointed, but none of the kings quite measured up. Yet they were the sign, the symbol that the deal was still on. The guarantee was still good. The promise was, it was something that could be believed. Now Solomon came along. David was uh, dying. And the people said, and this is a quote from 1 Kings 1, who will sit on the throne? Who's the next in the line? We know it's not David. He's dying. He's not going to live forever. So who's the next? Solomon. Solomon became king. And uh, he made his usual, uh, made the usual coronation speech, uh, chicken in every pot, no new taxes. 
And um, uh, the writer of, uh, of Kings said that the people shouted so loud, the ground split. It shook the ground. You know, this is the one. But Solomon wasn't the one. We know he wasn't the one. Uh, a good beginning. Uh, became a notorious womanizer, if I can put it that way. Uh, sold Israel down the river by bringing in the gods and goddesses of his, of his wives. He wasn't the one. He died. He didn't reign forever. So he couldn't be the one. So the cry went up again. Who will sit on the throne of David? And it was Rehoboam, young man with a lot of promise. He was a silly fool. Um, Solomon had conscripted slave labor from Israel, something that was prohibited by law to build his house and aggrandize himself. And uh, that's one of the reasons the nation split in two. Ten, uh, uh, ten tribes uh, under the leadership of Jeroboam who'd been one of Solomon's servants, came to Jer- to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and said, uh, lighten up. Jeroboam went to the old, uh, Rehoboam went to the old, uh, the elders of the nation. He said, what should I do? And they said, lighten up. He went to the young men, and they said, toughen up. So Rehoboam went back. He, he said, you think my, my father was tough. My little finger is bigger than his thigh. Thigh in Hebrew culture is symbol of strength. My little finger, he says, is bigger than his thigh. Just wait till I lay the lash on you. Jeroboam said, all right, had enough of this. And he ripped the nation in two. He took ten tribes north and they never recovered. Rehoboam was a fool, a young fool. Rehoboam died. People said, who will sit on the king of, who will sit on the throne of, uh, of Judah? Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram. And down into the ninth century is this woman named Athaliah that came to the throne. It's not widely known that she actually became a, a, a queen. The queen mother became the queen of the nation. She was Jezebel's daughter. Wicked, wicked woman. And uh, she decided to exterminate the dynasty of David. Remember the promise? There will be someone to sit on the throne. Some, sometimes very got very obscure. The lamp burned very dimly, but there was always someone to sit on the throne. She set out to kill them all. There were 70 descendants of David at that time. She killed 69 of them. A little Joash got away. Just, just a little guy got away. He become, became the king. And you come down into the 8th century and you have just a whole flock of bad kings, bad Judean kings. Perhaps the worst of them all was a man named Ahaz. That's the period that uh, Isaiah called the, the nervous dove period of Israel's history, Judah's history. And they're fluttering around like doves from one place to another, looking for, to the Assyrians for help, looking to the Egyptians for help, trying to get help anywhere except from God. And that's when Isaiah began to prophesy and he, he cornered... Uh, Ahaz at one point, Ahaz was fortifying the city and he was counting on his, uh, on his arms and his military might. And, and Isaiah said, just ask for a sign. Just ask for a sign. Ahaz, I don't need a sign. I've got my army. And Isaiah says, all right, I'll give you a sign anyway. It's the king who's to come. And then uh, a bit later, 
with reference to the same king, Isaiah gave another prophecy, that wonderful prophecy that we quoted at Christmas. Uh, said to Isaiah, a child, said to Ahaz, a child will be given to us. A son will be born to us, and his name shall be called Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The mighty, the, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Yours, my friend, is going to fall, but his kingdom will never fall. And then you come on down into the 7th uh, century and Assyria had, uh, had destroyed the kingdom to the north, destroyed the city of Samaria, the capital city of, of Israel. Things were looking very grim. For uh, Judah, and she had one bad king after another from Manasseh on, just wicked, wicked, awful, awful men. One or two that that pulled Israel out of the mire for a period of time, but in general the the trend was down. That's when God raised up Jeremiah. He's the one that rang the chain. You read the book of Jeremiah, you see over and over again he refers to the house of David, the house of David. A sprout, he says, will come out of the house of David. It's not Manasseh. Not any of these other wicked kings, but one of these days uh, someone will come from the house of David and he's going to turn this thing around. Keep your eyes on him. Don't count on this fellow. Keep your eyes on him. And then uh, the southern kingdom fell. The Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem, took the kings uh, off into captivity, the whole line of David. Uh, I don't know if you ever noticed it or not, but the last statement in the in Second Kings looks like a trivial historical footnote. Doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Uh, there was a king by the name of Jehoiakim. He was succeeded by, uh, pardon me, Jehoi- Jehoiakim. Yes, he was succeeded by Jehoiakim, whom the Babylonians removed because he was such a witless leader, and they put another person, a Jeho- a Jehoiakim's uncle, on the on the throne. Zedekiah was his name. They took Jehoi- Jehoiakim off to Babylon. But there's an interesting little note. He was a descendant of David, and the very last verse of Second Kings uh, recounts his rehabilitation in Babylon. He was exalted. He was given a, a, a regular uh, su- uh, supply of food and, and re- given resources to live. And, now, why is that there? Well, that's just a reminder. See, just a reminder. Here's a son of David. The, the lamp is still lit. The promise is still good. Over there in Babylon, there's a son of David who's still alive, who could sit on, on the throne. Oh, he's not the one. That was clear. But he's the sign that there's one yet to come. And we go through this terrible time of the exile to come to the period of, of return under Zechariah. And uh, Zechariah gives, gives the same promise. That the son of, five times in chapter 12, he says, the son of David's coming. Son of David is coming. Zechariah, Malachi. Malachi is the last book in our Bible. It was not the last book in, 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 in the Hebrew Bible. If you pick up a, the Bible the Jews use today, the Old Testament, you'll discover that Chronicles is the last book of the Bible. And if you read through Chronicles, you'll find that it begins with a long extended genealogy leading down to David and past the time of David. And then it, it recounts the stories of all the kings of Judah with all the bad stuff taken out. The only thing you find is what these kings did that was good. Even Manasseh, the worst of all the kings of Judah, 
We're told that he repented in the end and he was restored. Now, this isn't myth. This is history. This is what actually happened. But what the historian did was to pick and choose and leave out all of the terrible stuff and and portray the kings of Judah in the best possible light. Why? Well, to remind them that one of these days, the son of David is going to come. And he's going to set everything right. There's someone who is great and good who's going to rule over us. See, that's what we want more than anything else. We want someone great and good to rule over us. We were made to be mastered. We can't make it alone. Well, after the book of Chronicles was written, probably written by Ezra, the last of the Old Testament books, You have 400 silent years. Nothing was written. The Babylonian Empire gave way to the Persian Empire, gave way to the Greek Empire, gave way to the Roman Empire. The Romans dominated the country of Israel, people of Israel. And uh, 22 years before Jesus was born, the Romans took away from the Sanhedrin the right to levy uh, a uh, a capital uh, uh, punishment, right, to levy capital punishment. And one of the rabbis, writing at that time, in the Talmud, one of the, one of the rabbis says, Woe to us, for the scepter has departed from Judah. And they gave up. They just gave up. They weren't looking for the son of David any longer. They didn't really believe it could happen. There's this air of cynicism set in. And even see it in John the Baptist when he kept watching Jesus. And then when he was in prison, he thought things were going to turn around and he ended up in prison. And he sent to Jesus and he said, are you the one we should look for? Or, or should we wait for another? Are you just like all these other kings? Or are you the one? Jesus sent back and said, look. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. These are all the things that were promised of of Messiah. See, he was the one. He was the one that was promised. Now let me leave you with one, uh, one verse, Matthew 22. Pharisees raised two questions with Jesus. And I want to raise them in your mind. While the Pharisees, I'm reading verse 41. Uh, if you want to go back into the context, Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, clergy were giving Jesus a very hard time, asking him some tough questions, not because he wanted answers, but because they wanted to discredit him. So he turns the tables on them, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. See, they knew. They knew that the Messiah would would come through the line of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put 
your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You understand what he's saying? He's not just the son of David, he's the son of God. David called him Lord, used the word in the Old Testament that's used for, used for Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord of Israel. David called him Lord. Now I want to ask you that same question. What, what, what do you say about the Messiah? Who is he? Whose son is he? Oh, he's the son of David. We, uh, we celebrate his birth on Christmas. We, uh, we put up manger scenes, delight in our crushes. He's the son of David. He's also your Lord. He's the Son of God. I was um, walking through the mall the other day, and I uh, thought of an old Doonesbury cartoon that I saw. Uh, Michael J. was was ensconced in his easy chair, sitting in front of the television set. And it was the end of the broadcast day, and the announcer was saying, you know, we've come to the end of our programming. He says, what follows will be the national anthem and a film clip of the Marines and a story from the life of Jesus. And uh, Michael J. stands up for the uh, singing of the national anthem. And I thought when I read that, good shot, Gary, that is a penetrating analysis of of what's going on in our, our world today. Nothing special. Everything alongside everything else. Jesus isn't anything special at all. See, that's the problem today. He's the son of David, but he's not anything special to anyone. He's not the son of God. He's not the Lord of their life. He's not the one who can come and take the most barren habitation and turn it into a, into a glorious thing. No one looks at him like that anymore. He's just, he's the son of David. Nothing more, nothing more. Carolyn told a story to the women at the uh, conference. She, she got in ahead of me. I, I wanted to tell the story, but she, she uh, had the first shot at it. It's a great story. We took our grandchildren to the Festival of the Trees uh, Friday night a week ago. Kind of a special occasion for Grandma and Grandpa, and, and uh, uh, Melissa, uh, she's what, four? Three, she's three. And uh, she was wandering around, and we kept trying to get her interested in the trees, you know, and she didn't seem particularly interested. Um, there was a talking Christmas tree there, that, that scared her. And uh, Santa Claus was there, and that, that scared her worse. And she didn't want anything to do with Santa Claus, and she wasn't really interested in the trees. You know, he kept pointing out things to her. Look, Melissa, look. Came around the corner, and there, there was a manger scene. Really, wasn't a very, uh, it wasn't a very special manger. It was a very ordinary manger scene. A little doll in, in a manger in a crib, and she was transfixed. She just stood there and looked at it and pressed up against the tape that they had there to keep people from touching it. She just kept looking at it and looking at it. She was just astonished. And uh, we, we kept saying, come on, Melissa, let's, let's go. Let's look at the rest of the trees. And She didn't want to leave. She just kept looking at the manger, something very special to her. Finally, we just almost literally dragged her away from the scene and onto the other trees. We kept pointing out trees to her and just couldn't get her interested. And as we were as we were leaving, she said, 
I want to see the baby. And we had to take her back to the manger scene, and she stood there again and just gazed at the baby. And I thought, Lord, make me a little child again, at least for tonight. You know, to... My problem is that I didn't see the baby for the trees. And that's a problem with us today. Jesus isn't anything special. We don't see him for the trees. As the hymn puts it, come, let us adore him. Let's adore him. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray.